This is an Alexandrian Media original podcast. A quick disclaimer before I let you dig into today's episode. This episode contains some adult themes, such as sexual connotation, intense religious proclamations, and emotional manipulation. Listener discretion is advised. Please see the show notes for further details. In this episode, I will be playing music by Scriabin himself. However, I am currently unable to use Le Poème de l'Extase in this episode. If you would like to hear the full work, feel free to go to the Composer Chronicles' Spotify playlist, which I have linked in the show notes. From now on, I hope to begin using as much music by the future composers as I can, but until there is a way for me to do that safely and legally, I will be sure to notify you which episodes will feature that composer's music and which won't. In any case, the featured pieces of each episode can be heard in the Spotify playlist. The art of poetry is one of the oldest and most celebrated forms of surviving art. It manipulates language and plays on the rhythm of spoken word to conjure a desired image, incite a particular emotion, or enchant the reader or listener to sway in the direction the creator wishes them to go. Today, when the idea of poetry is approached, one may almost instinctively recall one of their favorite poems, possibly by Robert Frost, Emily Dickinson, Walt Whitman, Shel Silverstein, or William Butler Yeats, to name only a few poets, but rarely does one consider the essence of what makes a poem a poem before immediately diving into their favorites and the connections to their lives. Some of the oldest known surviving poems tell epic tales of gods, heroes, and monsters, such as the Epic of Gilgamesh from the 3rd millennium BCE Mesopotamia, the Iliad and the Odyssey from ancient Greece, and the Indian Vedas. They open a window into our distant past. Their poetic form makes these texts difficult to read at times, causing a reader to stop, reread, and reflect much more frequently than similar texts written in prose. So what is the point in making something unnecessarily difficult if the intent of the writer is to share their stories? For writers today, a poet may say it is for the art of it, the mere brushing against an idea rather than truly grasping it. But for our ancestors, this was a way for them to memorize these stories and pass them along orally in a world where writing was not as accessible as it is today. Knowing how intertwined literature and music are, it's surprising that it took until around 200 years ago for the musical world to find a way to use the word poem as a term in music. Franz Liszt, a Hungarian composer and virtuoso pianist, introduced poem into musical terminology when he used the word to categorize his orchestral works that weren't quite a symphony and were more narrative than a concert overture. To list a poem depicted events and adventures, either within the physical or spiritual worlds, using music as its narrator. After Liszt, composers such as Richard Strauss, Antonin Dvorak, and Gilles Sibelius championed this new genre of music, calling them symphonic poems or tone poems. 
However, there's one composer who took this new term and manipulated it for his own artistic endeavors and to promote his theosophical beliefs. To this composer, a poem was a designation for works that were more elusive and ethereal in nature. They wove tapestries of inexplicable moods, cast enchantments upon listeners, coaxing out one's deepest desires, and sang sweet lullabies to tired souls who longed to sever themselves from the harsh realities of life. That composer is Alexander Scriabin. Scriabin's use of the term poem stays closely related to his piano works, but his three final orchestral works, his third, fourth, and fifth symphonies, were all given this designation as well. It is with the fourth symphony that Scriabin's intentions with this term become all the more clear. This was a poem that would spark a new world, a world where all forms of art would meld into one. This was a poem that would prepare our spirits for ascension and replace humanity with spiritually advanced beings. This was a poem of ecstasy. This is the Composer Chronicles, a podcast that recounts the stories of composers past and present through the music they write. I'm Stephen Trigar, and this is episode number 35, Spirit Playing. Scriabin's passion for the piano was apparent from an incredibly young age. Several of his family members, particularly his aunt Yuboff, an amateur pianist herself, noted that he would demand her to play the piano for him. His fascination with the instrument would eventually lead him to study it at the Moscow Conservatory, and despite his small hands, he became one of the most talented piano students of his time. Because of his small hands, he often felt challenged by his peers, and this paranoia would cost him his right hand after damaging it while practicing Franz Liszt's Reminiscence de Don Juan and Miribelacria's Islami. Although he would eventually regain the use of that hand, the event caused him to look towards composing as an option, but he never pursued a degree in composition because of differences in opinion about composition with his piano teacher, Anton Arensky, who you may remember stirred up a similar argument with Sergei Rachmaninoff in episode 18a. After graduating from the Moscow Conservatory, Scriabin made his debut as a pianist in St. Petersburg, 
regularly performing his own works. His marriage to Vera Ivanovna Isakovich and his new position as a teacher at the Moscow Conservatory collided with his newly blossoming reputation as a composer. Here is a clip from his Opus 8, Etude No. 12, composed around this time. However, I'm not here to give you a lesson on Skrabin's career as a pianist and composer. I note this beginning of Skrabin's musical career because of one tiny detail that would stick with Skrabin for the rest of his life, and that is his relationship with God and the integration of his religious and philosophical beliefs into his music. Once Kriabin damaged his hand, he wrote his piano sonata number no. one in F minor as an act of defiance against God and against fate. Nothing would stop him from what he wanted out of his life, and not even God or fate could stop him. Skriabin would carry this philosophy with him throughout his life. While the face of that philosophy may have changed, the soul of that struggle was still there. Skrabin would not let his existence on this earth be tied to anything or anyone. If he wanted something, he would get it himself. And that is what makes Skrabin's relationship with his wife Vera and their four children all the more tragic. By the winter of 1904, Skrabin and his family moved to Switzerland. By this time, he had already begun his love affair with his former student Tatiana Fyodorovna Schloeser. Skrabin's philosophies had become more than Vera could comprehend, and he became increasingly agitated that his wife would not share those same philosophies he had. His involvement with the Theosophical Society only grew his ideas, and just before their move to Switzerland, he would declare that he wanted a partner who could breathe the same philosophical air as him. Their relationship became more and more toxic, with Skrabin baiting his wife that their marriage was fine, meanwhile slipping off on trips to visit to the now-pregnant Tatiana. He put up Tatiana in a little Italian village, Obolasco, free from the public eye and gossip, and once he left Vera, he would join her there. But their plan took much longer than anticipated. The premiere of his Symphony No. 3, also known as a divine poem, took up a great deal of his time, and he was busy with a literary work that was to become part of his philosophical doctrine. That literary work was a text version of Le Poème de l'Extase, the poem of ecstasy. We'll dive deeper into the creation of Le Poème de l'Extase after the break.
What would a world without music be like? I certainly don't want to know. This podcast would not exist. Luckily, we don't have to find out what that world is like. I do a lot of listening in a day between all of my favorite music and podcasts, and it's not just for entertainment. I'm constantly doing research for this podcast and switching back and forth between apps to listen to a podcast episode and then a piece of music can get tiresome if I'm trying to quickly switch back and forth. From an episode of Hey Riddle Riddle, to Stravinsky's The Firebird Ballet Suite, and then to Lady Gaga's latest album, I can listen to them all on Amazon Music whenever and wherever I want. I start listening when I get into my car, and then when I get home, I switch over to my Alexa while I cook dinner for me and my fiancé. Listeners of this podcast can join me in listening to all of the best music and greatest podcasts on Amazon Music Unlimited right now when you sign up today at getamazonmusic.com slash thecomposerchronicles and get your first 30 days for free. You can get unlimited access to any song and do all of that listening without any ads. So again, go to getamazonmusic.com slash The Composer Chronicles and start listening on Amazon Music Unlimited today. Scraven aimed to publish commentary on it, together with an exposition of his doctrine, published in a booklet. That exposition would become the subject of his next symphony. In a letter to Tatiana in December of 1904, Scraven tells her of his excitement of this poem. He says that, quote, I am swept up by an enormous wave of creativity. I choke for breath, but oh, what bliss! I am creating divinely." End quote. And bliss it was. One reading this poem can see right through its fantastical facade and see it for what it truly is. A poem about sex. Of course, there is certainly more to the poem than just sex. The poem tracks the ascent of a spirit into consciousness more so a consciousness within the world he aimed to create after the premiere of his unfinished Mysterio. We know that Scriabin had sex on his mind while preparing the music for this new symphony, because in his notebooks, and nearly all the way up to the completion of the work, he titled it Poème Orgiac, translated as Orgiastic Poem. To Scriabin, orgiastic meant orgasmic, and when it came to the musical markings in his score, he certainly didn't shy away from making sure the musicians knew exactly what he meant, marking passages with phrases such as, with a sensual pleasure even more rapturous, very perfumed, and with a continuous drunkenness. Just days after leaving Vera, he wrote to her from Bagliasco, where he was now living with Tatiana. 
excitedly telling her of his new project of composing a fourth symphony. He worked with intensity and ferocity, and he is noted saying on repeat, quote, This will be unlike anything I have ever done so far. It will be as I feel and see now. A great joy, an enormous festival. End quote. This quote, while poetic, is all too prophetic. Just shortly before beginning work on the literary portion of the poem, Scriabin began sketches of his final work. This final work, titled Mysterium, was a synesthetic spectacle, combining a full orchestra, choir, visual effects, dancers, processions, incense, rhythmic poetry, aided by mists, lights, and architecture, performed in the foothills of the Himalayas in India. This piece was to put an end to the world and replace the human race with nobler beings, and Le Poème de l'Extase was the first step towards realizing that goal. Over the next several years, Scriabin continued working on Poème Jacques while preparing the text for a separate pamphlet, but in May of 1906, just about halfway through the composition of the symphony, he dropped the name of the piece for a more favorable one, Le Poème de l'Extase, or the Poem of Ecstasy, and just in time before printing the text. Orgiastic was too close to musical depictions of Venusberg or Valpurgisnacht, where orgies and evil were all too physical. Ecstasy was a little more ambiguous and not frequently associated with music up until this point. He wanted this text to be available everywhere. I imagine him printing several hundred copies, if he had the money, and throwing them into the wind so pedestrians could pick up one as they walked by. Yet, as the symphonic version was nearing completion, he refused to put the poem in the score, and for it to be narrated at performances. If a conductor wanted to perform the work, they were encouraged to purchase their own copy of the pamphlet, while at the same time suggesting that they not read the poem in preparation of the symphony because the symphony should be approached as pure music. The connection between the text and the symphony got incredibly hazy as the completion of the music was coming to a close. He wanted everyone to know that there was a text version of the poem, yet he urged them to not associate the two together. Instead, he gave three vague descriptions about the three major sections of the work. One, his soul in the orgy of love. Two, the realization of a fantastic dream. And three, the glory of his own art. In 1907, Scriabin wrapped up work on the symphony. He had married the pregnant Tatiana, and they moved to Paris. But after Le Poème de l'Extase was completed, he no longer felt comfortable living in Paris. The hustle and bustle of the city was almost like a poison to him, and so he and his new wife moved to Lausanne, Switzerland, just seven hours away from Paris, but far enough away where rent was cheaper, the area was quieter, and he felt healthier living there. Even more beneficial, all his music was being printed there after breaking his partnership with the publisher Mitrofan Balyeyev, who you may also remember from episode 18a as the man who helped Rachmaninoff get his symphony number no. one premiered. In this new, peaceful household, where Skriabin could play his piano without fear of complaints from neighbors, 
he soon enough began composing again. He started with revisions to the poem de l'Extas. The revisions were quite taxing upon him. At times he felt that the work itself drained his strength and tested his patience, and so he turned to another composition for a while. To take his mind off the symphony, he wrote his Piano Sonata No. 5, a work that he regarded as the best composition he ever wrote, and he completed it within only six days. Oddly enough, this piano sonata also used the text of Le Poème de l'Extase as a focal point, making two of Scriabin's musical works based on the same text. Scriabin loved his poem. He would read it to as many people as he could, even after his philosophies changed. Despite his frustrations with the symphony in his final years of revision, he loved the symphony just as much as the text. Eventually, the symphony premiered with the Russian Symphony Society of New York on December 10, 1908, amazing the audiences with its lush colors and charming atmosphere. He would even go on to suggest that while listening to Le Palme de l'Extase, one should look directly at the sun in order to comprehend its full majesty. But whatever happened to that poem? Today, the poem seems to only exist in fragments. When attempting to do any research, and even a stanza of the poem was published with the Piano Sonata No. 5 as an epigraph. While the poem seems to have disappeared, it hasn't been completely lost. Luckily, I have found a copy of the full poem translated in a biography of Skidabin by Fabian Bowers. Because of my inability to play a clip of the symphony, I want to show you just how far Skidabin's musical language changed from that first recording you listened to. This is Prelude, Opus 67, Number 1. It was composed and published several years after Le Poème de l'Extase, but the prelude still holds that unique flavor that Scraben found when composing the symphony. With mysterious delights of unknown feelings, with myriads of dream and vision, with inspiration's flame, with truth-seeking, with the forbidden wish of divine freedom, O oh, my beloved world, I shall come. Your dream of me is being born. It is I. Already I am manifest in mysterious presence, a barely perceptible breath of freedom. Lightly, a wisp of dream, the wave of my being has already seized you. You are quivering already. I am your beloved freedom, you, my beloved world. I am come to dazzle you with the marvel of enchantment repeated. I bring you the magical shiver of scorching love and unimaginable caresses. Surrender to me in all faith. I will drown you in oceans of bliss and beloved kisses and great heaving waves. 
but in our remoteness, playing only the spray envelops you, and you insanely desire something else, the new. And then, in torrents of flowers, I will lie upon you with aromas and scents. I will bask languidly in this play of fragrance, now tender, now sharp, in the play of touches, now soft, now harsh, and sinking into passion, you will whisper again and ever again. Then I will plunge with the horde of fearsome monsters, with savage torment and terror, I will crawl upon you with verminous nests of snakes, and will bite and choke you, and you will want me more madly, more passionately. Then I will lie upon you under rays of celestial suns, and you will burn with the fires of my emotion, the holy flames of desire for the sweetest, most forbidden, most mysterious. In all you become a single wave of liberty and joy. Multiplicity has created you. Legions of feelings have elevated you. O oh, pure desires, I create you. This complex unity, this feeling of bliss, seizes you completely. I am the instant illumining eternity. I am the affirmation. I am ecstasy. This episode of The Composer Chronicles was written and researched by me, Stephen Shigar. The show's beautiful theme music was written by Daryl Banner. Music and other sources used for this episode can be found in the show notes or by going to alexandriamedia.org slash The Composer Chronicles. If you've enjoyed this episode, I ask that you head on over to Apple Podcasts, Podchaser, or any other platform that will allow you to rate and review. They greatly help the show more than it may seem, and I thank all of those who have done so, so far. If you've really enjoyed the episode, consider becoming a member of my Patreon page. Starting at only $1.50 a month, members get early access to ad-free versions of every episode, and they get a Patreon-only podcast named Unscripted. At higher levels, patrons get discounts in the merch store, transcripts of Unscripted, monthly content schedules, and free copies of my ebook anthology, Tales of Love, Lost Magic, and Reality. Become a member by clicking on the link in the show notes or by going to patreon.com slash the composer chronicles next week i'll be joined by isaac and kc from the podcast notes and strokes as we discuss modest musorski's piano suite pictures at an exhibition and the art by victor hartman that inspired those musical pictures thank you for listening i'll see you next time Alexandrian Media, Art and Culture for the Modern Era.